Will you be the one to rule all of Azeroth? Well, let's find out with Warcraft this week on the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 50 of the Upper Memory Block podcast. I'm your host, Joe, and I'm back once again for the 50th time to talk about a game from the DOS and pre-Windows XP gaming era. Yes, it's episode 50. I guess that's sort of a milestone. Hooray. Second year anniversary was a little while back, so... uh, Lots of fun doing the show as always, and uh, things have been uh, have been entertaining since the uh, since since the last show. It's uh, spring, I guess, here in Canada at least. Here in uh, in quote unquote central Canada, which is Quebec and Ontario, uh, spring doesn't really happen as much as it basically switches from being winter to being summer, <laughs> kind of a thing. So it's it's sudden all of a sudden uh, gotten gone from having the heating on to having the air conditioning on. And uh, raining right now, not too awesome, but uh, it's nice and warm, gotten some runs in outside. I just got back from the gym, so if I am talking fast, I apologize. I have that tendency with the whole endorphin rush, adrenaline, blah, 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 to do that. But uh, all that aside, huge, huge, huge show this week. So uh, enough about the weather and enough about my boring life. Let's get into the news. So it appears... That a couple weeks back, uh, some stuff happened with uh, with John Carmack. It appears that that John Carmack's departure from ID and uh, and Oculus VR's subsequent acquisition by Facebook has triggered, of course, some lawsuits. Uh, it seems that ID and its parent company Zenimax are suing Carmack, uh, claiming he stole patented technology and brought him brought it with him over to Oculus VR and kind of implemented it. Over there, uh, Carmack, of course, denies these allegations. And uh, as always, I'll keep an eye on the developing situation. I don't suspect that any of this is going to happen fast because this is law, legal court stuff, which uh, which always takes time. But uh, interesting situation at the very least. Who knows if anything's going to come of it? But if it does, as I always do, I will let you know. Uh, next, we have some Wolfenstein news. Uh, just today, I don't think I've been talking about this game very much, but just today, uh, the launch trailer for Wolfenstein The New Order has released. Uh, the game is set in an alternate 1960s where Nazis, the Nazis, or the Nazis, the Nazis, them Nazis, sorry, where the na- Nazis won World War II. Um, firstly, kind of looking at this uh this launch trailer, the graphics look great. I'm not sure. I don't think it's Unreal Engine 4. It's probably still Unreal 3 um, or something else. God knows, but probably Unreal. Uh, secondly, uh, if the trailer is any indication, this is going to be a very cinematic and story-driven game. Uh, I'm very, very excited. Uh, you can check out the trailer over at GameSpot. I'll link it in the uh, in the show notes. One thing I really liked is when, when the trailer started, because I'm a big Fallout fan, uh, it starts with uh, with a really cool. Uh, it starts with a a version of "Cats in the Cradle" in German 
done with uh, an accordion and it just felt very fallout to me so uh anyways you can check out that trailer game spot really really cool finally in the news because i don't want to spend too much time here because we got big things to talk about uh i'm going to talk about a kickstarter project since i don't feel like i've talked about a kickstarter project in uh in quite a while uh so we have a company here called playway they're out of poland and uh, they are trying to develop a game called The Way. Uh, it's going to be a puzzle platformer, which is very strongly reminiscent of games like Another World that I recently uh, covered, or Flashback, which uh, I will cover one of these days. Um, they're already above their very modest goal of $15,000 with 20 days left in the campaign. Uh, graphically, game looks very, very cool. Gameplay-wise, very similar to Another World. Uh, so check it out if you're interested. You can uh, Google the way or search for the way on Kickstarter. And of course, there will be a link in the show notes. You are listening to the Upper Podcast. Okay, to start off the show, we have a couple of emails. So first, we have an email from friend of the show, Andreas. He writes, hi, Joe, long time, no mail. Unfortunately, I am still not really an adventure type gamer, so I haven't got anything to say about Little Big Adventure. Instead, I just want to say that I have also been playing the crap out of Diablo 3 ROS, or Reaper of Souls. I agree that the original Diablo 3 was a good game, but uh, with a serious amount of issues, all of which were fixed by Reaper of Souls. I'd offer to play together uh, a bit, but I'm sure you're on the North American server while I am on the European one. Anyway, a Diablo episode in the future sounds awesome. Looking forward to it. If there happens to be a European UMB community in Diablo 3, I'd love to play with them, though. I've never really played any Warcraft games, but uh, I have a few friends who were really into Warcraft 3. What surprised me is that they all seem to be playing this tower defense mod. It was the first time I had heard of tower defense, and while it looked fun, I couldn't help but wonder why they weren't playing it just as an RTS. Well, thank you, Andreas. And uh, yes, sadly, or maybe not sadly, I am playing on uh, on the North American uh, Diablo 3 servers. And uh, I mean, frankly, if you guys do want to play with me, uh, you can look me up on, on Battle.net. I think my tag is BillyBobPound1940. Uh I don't really have any super high guys. Um, I think I have three guys around level 20 or 30. I'm, I'm not super awesome. But uh, when I get on there and uh, I, my aim is to get someone to, to max level, which I believe is 70. Anyways, something like that. So uh, yeah, really, really cool. And um, yeah, we're going to talk about a little bit of uh, Warcraft modding in the show. But uh, but that's cool. You know, I, I don't have a ton of experience playing Warcraft mods myself, but uh, I definitely know about them so thanks again next uh we have a voicemail that uh i was supposed to play in the last show from uh, amy riot akago and uh i guess our, our wires got crossed and it didn't quite uh either didn't it didn't get into my inbox let's say so uh here it is as a follow-up to uh to last show on little big adventure take it away hello again joe this is me amy riot akago now coming to you in voicemail form Thanks for the shout-out last time. Love the episode as always, but when I heard you were gonna cover Little Big Adventure next, I practically fell off my chair in excitement, cause 
I make no big secret of the fact that LDA happens to be one of my all-time favorite games, and one that I am in fact hoping to review on my own YouTube channel one of these days. The first time I actually saw the game was at a computer club that my brother took me to one day. I don't really remember the circumstances, but I do remember being utterly fascinated by what I saw there. There were dozens of people, all of them had brought their own PCs and Amigas and whatnot with them, and they were playing games, exchanging files, doing all of this cool stuff. It, it was like a candy store for my younger PC gaming loving self. And in one spot, I saw some guys sitting around a PC playing LBA, which I recognized since I read a review of it in a Dutch PC gaming magazine that I was subscribed to at the time. It looked awesome, but that glimpse was pretty much all I got until a while later when my brother came home one day, as he often did back then, with a tape full of pirated games that he copied from a friend of his. Yeah. Back then, we freely pirated games from each other since it was cheaper than actually buying the darn things, and since a lot of them were a bit too big to put on floppy disks, and this was before the CD burner era, we instead had to resort to good old reliable tape streamers. Tapes carried a few dozen to a few hundred MBs, as I recall, but the process of reading and writing data to and from one was a pretty lengthy process. Still, it was well worth the effort, as my brother often supplied me with new games in this manner, and LBA was one of these. Sadly, it was a CD-ripped version, meaning it was lacking all of the cutscenes and CD music, but the speech files were intact at least. That is, until one day I went into the game's setup program and accidentally hit the Erase Voice Files option, meaning I had to play the rest of the game with text only. <laughs> Still, I absolutely adored it. The storyline, the weird characters, the expansive world, the blend of adventure and action, the isometric perspective, the polygonal models, the smooth animation, all of it. I loved exploring this massive world, going from island to island in pursuit of my kidnapped girlfriend, first by ferry and then later with my own purchased boat or even the awesome Dinofly, going from one objective to another while freely exploring and talking to people. I loved the magic ball, how it made a funny wobbling noise every time you threw it and how it bounced around, smacked enemies in the face with each hit. Though that said, the combat was probably the weakest part of the game, because you constantly had to be dead on with throwing the ball and missing even once, more often than not, resulted in Twinson getting hit and getting caught in an endless loop of damage animations with no way to fight back or escape until you dropped dead and had to try again. But I struggled through all the frustrations and was rewarded with one of the most memorable games I'd played up until that point. I especially recall one moment where you talk to one person somewhere who makes a remark like, Funfrock's really starting to hate you, you know? It's just a tiny little line, but somehow it really gave me a sense that what I was doing made a difference. Long story short, I finished the game, but eventually we had to delete it to clear up some disk space, and so I wouldn't see it again until a few years later, when uh, I was shopping for new games with my dad after I'd saved up my allowance, and at the toy store, I found an EA Classics edition of LBA and took it home without hesitation. So now, I could not only play the game again with full voice acting and see all the awesome pre-rendered cutscenes for the first time, I could also enjoy the amazing Redbook audio music tracks. Needless to say, the game's still in my collection to this day, and will probably stay that way until the end of time. As for the sequel, I read about it in a German PC gaming magazine one day, and I was stunned, like, LBA 2? Wow! Even better, the magazine came with a CD-ROM containing demos of upcoming games, and LBA 2 was among them. So, I played it, and I was blown away by the full 3D outdoor environment, seeing all of the familiar locations and characters, along with the new stuff on Zeelich. I got to playing the full version when I borrowed a copy from my local library, but for one reason or another I never finished it, until I bought the full version years later and thoroughly enjoyed it. 
The game wasn't all that different from its predecessor, for better or worse, but it maintained the same quirky atmosphere and awesome freedom of movement that I loved so much about the first game. Uh, one last thing I want to mention before signing off, there was what uh, there was another game by the same developers called Time Commando, which was kind of a 3D beat-em-up in historical environments, which was pretty cool. But what's really funny is that you can actually encounter the game's protagonist, Stanley, in LBA2 as an enemy. He looks and sounds and even fights pretty much the exact same way he did in his own game, so that was a neat little easter egg for longtime Adeline fans like myself. So, that pretty much wraps up my story about the LBA games, so Joe and anyone else who might be listening, keep being awesome, see you out there somewhere. Well, thank you so much for that, and, uh, you know, actually, I really wish I'd, I'd been able to include that in the show, because it just it, it works really, really well, especially... You know, if it was timely right after I had talked about the game, but you know, in a way, it's nice because I kind of gave my verdict and all that, and had time to kind of sit on, sit on it and whatever. And you know, I'm not gonna, I, I don't, I haven't changed my mind in so much as as it stands today. The game is absolutely uh, frustrating to play, and you kind of touch on it a little bit. The combat's frustrating and things like that. But there's there's a lot in this world. Like it's a very deep, very very rich world the story that's trying to be told despite kind of these sillier naming conventions and things like that which i think if i had played the game when i was younger i'd probably appreciate much more but uh yeah you know the game certainly in its in its place in time has has a place and and has things to be appreciated about it and obviously you know being someone that played it at the time when you were younger and frankly i find Maybe it's different for for young people now, but I feel like it was harder to get games back, you know, in the in in the late eighties, early nineties, mid nineties kind of a thing, and so we had less of them. So the ones that we had, frankly, even if there were problems with them, they were harder to come by. So maybe we took them with a bit more of a grain of salt and said, oh, you know, the story here is cool, and the gameplay is is okay, and the movement's okay, and the combat sucks, but I'll just suck it up and play it. Whereas I think now if you have stuff like Steam, you know, I'll buy a game on sale for a buck fifty. I'll play it for twenty minutes and go, ah, this game's no good, and done. That's that's the, the end of it. So thanks again. Really, really great comments. And let's get on with the show. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for over. Okay, on to the main event, and one I am very excited to discuss, Warcraft. The Warcraft series consists of four or five games, depending on how you count it. Uh, In this show, I'll be focusing mainly on the first three. All the games were developed and published by one of my favorite game developers of all time, Blizzard Entertainment. The first game in the series, entitled Warcraft Orcs and Humans, released in the year... 1994. So, as we do, let's discuss the genre. We've been here before. Warcraft is an RTS or real time strategy game. We've seen this genre twice before with Command and Conquer and Dune 2. So, a real time strategy game puts the player in command of a grouping of military units and structures tasked with accomplishing some sort of goal. Uh, The goal is generally military in nature. Defense of a fixed position, destruction of all enemies on a given map, capture a specific enemy unit or structure, escorting of a special unit, basically any kind of 
military type objective you can think of. To develop your base structures uh, and train additional units, RTS games usually introduce the concept of resource gathering. Each unit, building, or upgrade costs a set of resources. Uh, resources generally consist of some naturally occurring elements such as gold, oil, spice, gas, rocks, whatever else. These resources are sometimes used directly. For example, one unit could cost 100 gold and 50 wood. Other times, the resources are simply converted into money. Uh, you generally control your units from a godlike view above the map, which is initially covered by what has become known as the Fog of War. Fog of War obscures areas your units have not yet explored. Uh, RTS games tend to be mission-based, with missions increasing in difficulty and complexity as you progress through the game. Also, most RTS games allow you to play from the point of, uh, the point of view of multiple factions. Sometimes you get the choice of which faction to play right from the start, and other times you play through each campaign in order according to the development of the game's story. So that's a quick overview of the genre. Let's get into stuff for reals. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Story time! Okay, so if there's one thing that Warcraft both the first game and in general, has in spades, especially at this point it's in existence, in its existence, its backstory. I was under the impression that the first game honestly didn't have a whole bunch, but pulling up the manual gives us some framing for the world we are about to enter. In the age of chaos, two factions battled for dominance. The kingdom of Azeroth was a prosperous one. The humans who dwelled there turned the land into a paradise. The Knights of Stormwind and the clerics of Norsha Abbey roamed far and wide, serving the King's people with honor and justice. The well-trained armies of the King maintained a lasting peace for many generations. Then came the Orcish Hordes. No one knew where these creatures came from, and none were prepared for the terror that they spawned. Their warriors wielded axe and spear with deadly proficiency, while others rode dark woods as black as the moonless night. Unimagined were the destructive powers of their evil magics derived from the fires of the underworld. With an ingenious arsenal of weaponry and powerful magic, these two forces collide in a contest of cunning, intellect, and brute strength, with the victor claiming dominance over the whole of Azeroth. Welcome to the world of Warcraft. Okay, so that's a very general overview. We're going to go into a bit more detail. Why? Because I really like WoW lore. So we find ourselves in the land of Azeroth. At this point, we assume it's a fairly large kingdom. Uh, as time goes on, we find out that this is the name of the entire planet, but we're not quite there yet. So, as of the first game, uh, Azeroth, the kingdom, is populated by a race of humans, much like us. The land has been peaceful and content for many generations, kind of a very fairy tale beginning. So the conflict with the orcs does not, in fact, begin with this game, but 40 years earlier with the birth of two children. Firstly, a strange child born of the court sorcerer and a mysterious stranger. This child's name is Medivh. 
The strange woman, who is the child's mother, uh, disappears soon after Medivh's birth, and he is taken in as a ward of the kingdom. Five years later, we see the birth of Prince Lane, son of the rulers of Azeroth, King Rin and Lady Varia. The birth of the royal heir is celebrated across the land. Hooray, we have a prince. So Medivh soon, 12 years later, or I guess seven years later, <laughs> reaches the age of 12, which in Azeroth is considered the age of ascension, a very important day in a boy's life. The expectation is that Medivh is uh, going to be awarded the position of apprentice court conjurer studying under his father. So that night, night of the, the night of the eve of the dawn of his 12th birthday, uh, Medivh's sleep was troubled. He was kind of enduring disturbing dreams of figures chasing something through deep, dark chasms. Waking up in a cold sweat, he made his way to his father's room. The conjurer was concerned for his son, and uh, as he reached out to touch Medivh's fevered brow, burning fire ignited from Medivh's eyes. Witnessing this massive explosion of power, the clerics of Northshire Abbey made their way to the castle. Only with their combined magical strength could they contain the incredible magical power pulsing from Medivh's body. Hours, if not days, passed, and just like the snuffing out of a candle, the eruption of power suddenly stopped. Medivh collapsed to the ground, unconscious. His father, the conjurer, lay dead. King Rin and the abbot of North... Yep, the abbot, the abbot of Northshire, uh, decide Medivh should be taken to Northshire Abbey for the safety of himself and of the kingdom. So that occurs, and five more years pass. Prince Lane reaches his age of ascension and is granted the official title, duties, and responsibilities of a prince of Azeroth. Again, the land rejoices and celebrate their new prince. At the height of the festivities, though, a cold wind chills the air, softly at first, but gaining in strength. Suddenly, the doors to the great hall blow open and a figure rides the wind up to the king's table. This figure, of course, is Medivh. He claims that his years of sleep are over. The clerics of Northshire Abbey have taught him to control his power, and he wants to repay their kindness and of you know the kindness of the king and of the Clarence clerics with a gift for Prince Lane. He produces an obsidian hourglass containing sand as white as snow. Though the sand moves from top to bottom, uh, the top never emptied, nor did the bottom ever appear to fill. Medivh claims that as long as the hourglass never empties, King Rin's reign would continue strongly and wonderfully. So from this day on, over the next six years, the land slowly grows sick. Children are stricken with disease, farms produce little food, and winters are harshly cold, and summers are scorchingly hot. Nobody could figure out what was causing this strife in Azeroth. One morning, Lane brings the hourglass to his father, and he's, he notices very quickly that it's nearly empty. As he holds it, the last grain of sand empties from the top. At the same time, horrible creatures crash through the gates of Stormwind Keep. It turns out this pestilence of the land didn't originate in Azeroth, but on a far-off world known as Draenor. Draenor was home 
to a race of savage beings known as orcs. As enemy after enemy fell before the Mondraenor, it was realized that for the orcish horde not to destroy itself, it needed new enemies to unite against. It was at this time that orcish warlocks, including one very powerful warlock named Gul'dan, uh, discover a small tear in the dimensional fabric of time and space and whatever. For years, the warlocks study the rift, eventually discovering that uh, it could be made into a portal to another place. Slow and steady experimentation create a tiny, stable portal. Over time, the warlocks are able to expand the portal and make it large enough for a single orc to pass through. This lone orc scout returns with fantastic stories of a lush green land, the opposite of the dry, cracked, and sick wasteland of Draenor. He brings with him odd plants to prove his claims. The warlocks approach the leaders of the strongest orc clans and convince them uh, to agree to a one-year cessation of hostilities so that they all might focus their energies on widening the portal to this new world. At the end of that time, they could resume conflict, but potentially have the opportunity to focus their energies there on the unknown world. As the rift grew larger, controlling it grew much easier. Sooner than anticipated, the warlocks were able to send a small detachment of seven orc warriors across through the portal. After a spectacular display of dark magic, the warriors traveled to this new world and sacked a nearby village, killing everything in their path with very, very little effort. While they found little of monetary value, they did find vast fields of grain and appetizing livestock. So this fertile land, defended by weak, pink-skinned creatures, was ripe for the taking by the orcish hordes. So the orcs did what they do. They fought amongst themselves to determine which of them would lead the assault through the portal. During these, during these quarrels, more was learned of the new land. Turns out it was called Azeroth, and it was inhabited by a race known as humans. Humans responded to pain much in the same way orcs did. Apply enough of it, and they would die. While the orcs intended to advance slowly across Azeroth, their nature got the better of them, and uh, it was decided that after a few probing raids around the area of the portal, that the best way to proceed was a full frontal assault on a large castle said to be in the north. This castle, of course, was Stormwind Keep. As we've already seen, the orcs hit swiftly, killing the guards and quickly breaching the gates. Uh, the orcs were about to declare victory, when human knights arrived atop their war, ho war horses. The orcs had never encountered such beasts before and were soon overwhelmed and driven back to the swamplands around their portal. Uh, these lands had oddly also begun to take on an, uh, the air of death and pestilence comparable to that of Draenor. It's, the suspicion was that the, uh, the portal was transporting the environment of Draenor across as well as just the orcs. So, for the next 10 years, skirmishes along the borders of human and orc territory in Azeroth uh, keep the people alert. Though the orcs remain in their swamps, the conflicts are close enough to home that uh, the residents and subjects of Azeroth are obviously affected. Around this time, a mysterious stranger comes to visit now King Lane. It turns out that this stranger is, in fact, Medivh's mother. Her intention in coupling with the conjurer back so many years ago, was to create a child that she could pass her power and knowledge onto. 
Obviously, something went wrong with this plan, and great external forces of darkness have dominated Medivh. Before visiting King Lane, she sought Medivh out and found him basically rendered insane by these powers controlling him. She realized that he had to be stopped. Now, the two sorcerers fought, and the mysterious stranger was all but slain. She has no power left to defeat him. Only the heroes of King Lane and the kingdom of Azeroth can do so. She also reveals that Medivh is the one responsible for inadvertently creating the rift that brought the orcs to Azeroth. As a result of the fight, Medivh is currently weakened, but soon enough, the forces of Stormwind will be forced to deal with him. Over the next five years, the skirmishes continue and one savage orc comes to power. The rule of Warchief Blackhand is at hand. Through studying the tactics of, uh, of the humans, in addition to great political guile and skill, in addition to his savage combat prowess, Blackhand unites the, sh- the scattered orc raiding parties, necromancers, and warlocks into a single unified force. Azeroth stands ready for the taking. Yes, my lord. Okay, gameplay time. So, I'm probably not going to spend tons of time on gameplay since most of us know how an RTS game plays. What I will say keeping in mind the last RTS show on Dune 2, is that Warcraft took the template created in the game by Westwood and extended it out a little bit. So in Dune, Dune 2 to be precise, almost every mission had the same objective. Gather resources, build your base, build your army, and destroy the enemy. Warcraft really mixed this up. In this game, we may be asked to simply build some farms. We may need to capture a rebellious town. We may need to rescue captured friendly forces from an enemy prison. And the big one that's really cool and really interesting are limited forces missions. That is, you have to take a set number of units and complete a task with those units. If all your units die, you lose. You do not have the ability to create additional units. So, as with almost any RTS game, to do any sort of production or training, you need to gather resources. This is done by your non-combat units known as peasants to the humans work completed and peons to the orcs work complete you can assign each of these guys to do one thing at a time they can either gather gold from a mine or they can chop down trees wood and gold are the resources used to build anything in the game from a new peon to a new temple now your non-combat units are also the guys that build your buildings generally if you're in a building that or a mission that allows base building uh, you'll start off with a town hall and probably a farm or two one farm can produce food for up to four units once that level is reached more farms need to be built so you can task your peasant or peon to do so that is as long as you have enough wood and gold one thing to keep in mind though all buildings must be built next to a road so adding in roads is an additional expense Your workers can also build a barracks. Now, the barracks is the building that produces all of your non-magical units, such as footmen, archers, knights, and catapults for the humans, and grunts, spearmen, raiders, and also catapults for the orcs. Each side also gets a special building for creating magical units. The humans get the church. Deo gracias. I love that sound. I don't know why. Don't ask me. So the church produces clerics and conjurers. Clerics are healing and defensive units, although they do have a ranged attack. And conjurers are basically pure magical offense. 
Now, on the orc side of things, the temple... ...produces necrolites and warlocks. Necrolites can raise skeletons from recently killed units of both sides, while warlocks uh, simply put out demonic magic damage, either directly or via minions. The cleric and the necrolite both offer the ability to also uncover far-off areas of the map temporarily via a power known as Far Sight. UI-wise, the game screen is split into three areas. The biggest area is, of course, the close-up view of the current part of the map we're looking at. This is where we interact with the game, selecting units and buildings and ordering them around. The top left is our mini-map. Now, unlike Westwood games, where you have to construct a building to activate the minimap, in Warcraft, minimap's always available. You can use it to get an overview of the explored area of the map and see when enemy forces approach. Also, unlike modern real-time strategy games, once you uncover an area of the map, it remains uncovered. The fog of war does not roll back in. This is similar to the functionality in Dune 2. Below the minimap, we have an area, I don't really have a specific name for it, but it's basically for displaying status and action buttons. This view changes depending on what is currently selected. Selecting a building will display its hit points, anything it's currently doing, and a series of action buttons. For example, if you have a barracks selected, the, this area will probably display buttons to train a footman or an archer. Uh, if you have a lumber mill selected, it would display buttons to upgrade weapons, and a town hall would show actions to train a new peasant or build roads. Now, if a unit is selected, a series of action buttons defining actions like move, attack, or stop are displayed. If a unit has spells, they would also be listed here. Uh, up to four units can be selected at once. Grouping of units can be done by holding down control and dragging a box around them, or the traditional shift-clicking each, uh, each individual unit. Of course, like any good RTS game, Warcraft could be played multiplayer via modem, network, or null modem cables. A few interesting aspects of the multiplayer is that uh, players using the Mac and DOS versions could actually play each other. This remains a hallmark of Blizzard games to this day, which is cross-platform compatibility. Also, a bit like Command & Conquer, the game allowed what are known as spawn installations. In fact, it's not really like Command & Conquer. Command & Conquer basically had two game discs, which would allow you to play one campaign of the game. Spawn installations are a bit of a different thing. So if you owned one copy of the game, you could install a multiplayer-only version on another computer. Now, I'm not sure, but I think this was only possible with the CD version. The full version of the game was the one that had the CD inserted. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for...
Okay, short tech focus today as well. So to run Warcraft Orcs and Humans, you required at least a 386DX 20 megahertz with four megs of RAM and DOS 5.0. Graphically, there's nothing surprising here either. We simply expect a machine capable of 256 color VGA graphics at 320 by 200 resolution. Of course, if you had the CD-ROM version, a double speed CD-ROM was also helpful. Though the game ran on a 386, if you wanted a full and quick snappy experience, you were looking at a low-end 486, ideally. The game's music was created by a team who I believe was led by Glenn Stafford. In addition, tracks were composed by Rick Jackson, Chris Palmer, and finally, Gregory Alper, who would go on to work on one of my favorite game soundtracks of all time, later Mech Warrior 2. Though the somewhat martial nature of the music is here, the audio from the first game isn't exactly the same style as the rest of the series to follow. It's really, really good. It's just a bit different in tone. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... Okay, dev story time. So unlike many other games I talk about, which can be directly attributed to a single human being, Warcraft isn't really marketed that way. Warcraft is the product of Blizzard Entertainment. So Blizzard, or at least the company that would eventually be called Blizzard, was founded on February 8th, 1991 as Silicon and Synapse. So Silicon and Synapse was founded by three guys, Mike Morheim, Alan Adam, and Frank Pierce. Uh, the group had all received their bachelor's degrees from UCLA the year before in 1990. Initially, the company started doing started off kind of doing what, what many small development houses start off doing. They ported games between platforms. Eventually, though, they got down to it and released their first game, RPM Racing, for the Super Nintendo Entertainment System. Interestingly, this game was developed using the SNES's high-resolution mode, which allowed for higher-res graphics at the expense of color depth, though think kind of like SVGA at 16 colors instead of VGA at 256 colors. Not exactly that, because it's console, TV lines, and all that, but it's an apt comparison. So after RPM Racing, uh, they rolled on to a unique puzzle platformer that I'll have to cover on the show one of these days, The Lost Vikings. In The Lost Vikings, you play three Vikings, Eric the Swift, Balog the Fierce, and Olaf the Stout. Each Viking has his own skills and abilities, which must be used uh, together to uh, traverse each level. The game originally released once again for the SNES, but was soon ported to other platforms, including DOS and the Amiga. Uh, next... A sequel to RPM Racing was developed, but was soon renamed to Rock and Roll Racing, since Interplay decided to add licensed background music to the game. Again, this was a console title. By early 1994, Silicon and Synapse was acquired by Davidson and Associates for a whopping $6.75 million. Uh, that year, they also decided to change their name to Chaos Studios. Uh, this happened but was soon quashed since another company already existed by the same name. Uh, since they needed a new name quickly, 
they came up with Blizzard Entertainment. Blizzard being a nod to what the team considered to be the company's tempestuous development process. What? What? Stop poking me! So, one thing that Silicon and Synapse, and then Chaos, and finally Blizzard was, was a company of gamers. The executives, designers, artists, programmers, admin staff, all of them all played lots and lots of games. One series they enjoyed immensely in the early 90s is what I've already discussed here, Dune. Now, they played both the first Dune and Dune 2, and uh, while they acknowledged the interesting melding of semi-real-time strategy wrapped in an adventure skin that was Dune, the thing that really captured their hearts and minds was the stripped-down, fast-paced, real-time gameplay of Dune 2. The Blizzard team, including programmer and designer Patrick Wyatt, played Dune 2 almost every day, on lunch, after work, whenever they had time. They talked about it, discussed strategy and tactics. Not only that, but they also talked endlessly about the game's shortcomings. The biggest one was that you could only play against the computer. It seemed to them that the game would be infinitely more fun if you could play against your friends. The real-time nature of the game made it much more fun as a potential multiplayer game than any turn-based game could hope to be. So, with this thought in mind development of a new real-time strategy game began. This was illustrative of the company's new name. They came up with an idea and a quote-unquote business plan du jour, as they called it. Uh, There was no thought put into design, technology, resources, budgeting, staff, anything like that. Wyatt was a developer, so he was put on the project. Now, this was September 1993, before the company would endure its various name changes. Since he was no artist and was assigned no art resources, he did what he thought was logical. Since he was making a game inspired by Dune 2, he simply screen-capped some resources from that game and started typing code. Once he had made some real progress, he knew management would likely assign him some artists. So, being a methodical guy, he got rolling. First things first, he built the beginnings of a game engine. There was a scrolling map renderer which, uh, with, with, in which he used tiles to stamp out different terrain, a sprite renderer could draw and move sprites around representing units, and an event dispatcher to handle mouse and keyboard control. On top of that, there was some rudimentary UI work to tie all these disparate systems together. At this point, he had the beginnings of what you could consider to be a single-player game. Uh, you couldn't make units yet. They were simply spawned by some typed cheat commands but that was good enough to start. Patrick was having a ball. Since he wasn't under any sort of time constraints or any sort of project plan, each day he built on top of the work that he did the day before, organically implementing whichever features he decided would be the best to do. The first feature implemented that was a direct improvement over Dune 2 was multiple unit selecting. In Dune 2, as I discussed back in that episode, Uh, you could only select a single unit at a time, which is incredibly frustrating and made moving around masses of troops very challenging. Now, Wyatt, in some previous work, had experience with older CAD programs. In CAD, or computer-assisted design, you could select a group of objects by clicking and dragging a rectangular selection box around the area. He figured the same mechanism would work for selecting multiple units. Now remember, this was before Windows made click and drag and shift click and all these actions ubiquitous. Initially, 
there was no limit on the number of units that you could select. Eventually, though, the decision was made to limit it to four. Now, this was not a technical limitation. In fact, the unlimited selection worked pretty well, except for a bit of odd pathfinding behavior above a certain limit. This was purely a gameplay decision. It was felt that the player should have to pay close attention to small numbers of units instead of simply creating a huge amount of troops and rushing the enemy. So by early 1994, enough progress had been made to warrant additional team members, mostly artists, including people we may know about if you play WoW, like Samwise Didier, who basically ended up defining the art style for all Blizzard games to come. Uh, he also got his hands on some more programmers, including Mike Morheim, one of the founders of the company, uh, who would work extensively on the mixed mode modem driver, which would allow different versions of the game to work together. So they had a game engine and a bunch of technical stuff. What they didn't have was any direction as to the story or setting of the game. Alan Adam, president of Blizzard, really hoped that they could get their hands on the Warhammer license. This would create brand recognition and, you know, it would help market and sell the game. Well, to suffice it to say that this Warhammer deal never materialized. Now, this was due in part to some business stuff, but also in part to some bad experiences with licensed games from DC Comics that they had recently developed, including the very awful uh, Death and Return of Superman, which uh, if you Google some reviews on it, it's truly an awful, awful game. Uh, most of the new real-time strategy game team at Blizzard really wanted to create their own universe that they would have full control over, with or without the license, one way or another. What Alan wanted to create was a series of games that he could release in what he referred to as almost identical white boxes. All these games would fall under the banner of Warcraft. Each game, in his mind, would focus on a different historical time period. So if they didn't get the Warhammer license, he wanted to do historical stuff. So you'd have Warcraft, the Roman Empire, Warcraft, World War II, Warcraft, Vietnam, etc., 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 uh, he had seen the success that SSI had, that Strategic Simulations Incorporated or something. Uh, they did all those gold box Dungeons and Dragons games. And he kind of figured that the same approach would work for Blizzard with this new Warcraft series. Well, Sam Didier and Ron Millar, Ron Miller, I'm not sure, Millar, M-I-L-L-A-R. Uh, these are two of the artists who were attached to the project were really not impressed with this idea. They did not want to do art resources for historical uh, historical uh, combat games, historical RTS games. They suggested instead that they keep Warhammer in mind and put the first game into a high fantasy setting. This idea stuck, and very, very soon after, Warcraft, Orcs and Humans was born. Your bidding? So the brainstorming began. Artists and programmers all had a hand in designing the concepts of the world Warcraft would take place in. The design was so collaborative, crediting the game designed to a single person actually became a big problem. So if you look in the manual, the game design is actually just credited to Blizzard Entertainment. So by February-ish 1994, they had a rough design document which outlined the world and the gameplay. It would be further refined as the development progressed. Now one major issue that the development team ran into was, frankly, lack of experience in developing more complex games for the PC. Up to this point, they had done a lot of work on consoles. Full console games fit easily on one floppy disk. 
Now, because of this, Blizzard also didn't have a corporate LAN. And uh, all code changes had to be merged manually. So if I made a change to code that someone else might have been working on, I had to put it on a disk, run it over to his computer, and they had to manually merge the code into one file. Uh, This, and obviously no centralized source code control solution or source control solution, led to a lot of code merging errors where one person would merge their code to another person's code and overwrite fixes, thereby reintroducing previously fixed bugs. It was a big problem and it wasted a lot of time going back and reapplying fixes that had already been uh, already been completed. So as with many games, a lot of ideas set out in the design document didn't make it into the final game. Unlike the Blizzard we know today and their concept of ship it when it's ready, Warcraft Orcs and Humans had a hard deadline of Christmas 1994. Now, there were plans for additional buildings such as a Mason Hall, Mason's Hall, a Dwarven Inn, a Fletcher, a Tax House, an Ale House, much, much, much more. These were all single-purpose single buildings, and so instead, their functionalities were either added to existing buildings or dropped from the game completely. Now, they also temporarily considered adding a third resource of stone uh, to make stone buildings with, but that was also quickly dropped. Another thing that was dropped was a really cool concept of formations. Uh, Using formations, you could set up groups of units with, you know, different functions taking different places in the formation. So you could set up spearmen to stand in the front of a formation with uh, more ranged archers and uh, support units in the back. This proved too complex to implement in the given time frame and was dropped, but it was really, really cool. They were talking about you know, the formation being able to wheel around a certain point, maintaining their form and all that sadly didn't quite work out. There was also an idea to represent your character on the battlefield and have you develop from a weak and experienced unit to a mighty warrior throughout the game. Again, this in addition to the now familiar concept of hero characters were also dropped for time. Another unique aspect of Warcraft, even more noticeable in later games, but uh, also visible in this first one, is the bright and cartoony art style. Uh, This was partially due to the experience of the art team and partially due to management directives. So the first point comes from the company's history. Uh, Most of the artists working at Blizzard worked primarily on console titles. And now on a console game of the early 90s running on CRT televisions, color palettes needed to be much brighter and much more dynamic since TVs of the time were really, really bad at displaying subtle color differences. Now, they were much worse than, uh, than computer monitors of the same, uh, the same generation. Secondly, Alan Adam, the president, was adamant that artists create their art in bright light. He would apparently wander through the office turning lights on and opening window blinds and generally irritating the artists who preferred working in dim light. Uh, he was also he was of the belief that most gamers played their games with the lights on and the art had to look good in those conditions. Of course, something that's critical to the success of a single player strategy game, art and graphics and all that stuff aside, is the enemy AI. Now up to this point, artificial intelligence in RTS games was generally considered very poor. So to solve this, Warcraft didn't necessarily improve the or push forward, push the envelope of, of AI programming. What they do is they stack the odds in favor of the computer to make things seem like they're a bit more complex. So for example, while you usually start a mission with a small encampment, like maybe one town hall and one or two farms, and you need to build up, 
the enemy always begins with a full city. Secondly, gold mines in the game have a limited amount of gold in them. When a player, peon, or peasant, or whatever mines gold, he removes 100 units from the mine and delivers 100 units to the town hall. Once the gold mine is exhausted, it blows up. To discourage players from just turtling up and waiting for the AI to mine out their gold and run out of money, uh, AI worker units would mine out a mere 8 units of gold from a mine, but still deliver 100 units to their town hall. Now, this was a twofold decision. The first reason was, again, to stop turtling, and the second one was so that if the player was able to go through and destroy an enemy encampment, they could capture the uh, the gold mine and it would still have a decent amount of gold left in it. So despite this clear cheating, all it really served to do was to make the AI appear somewhat competitive and somewhat intelligent. So during all this AI programming, Wyatt and the other programmers were also developing the game's multiplayer functionality, both over IPX networks and over modems. Your command? Yes, my lord. So, despite these challenges and potential pitfalls and all that stuff, Warcraft, Orcs and Humans, released on 23 November 1994 in time for Christmas and was an instant hit. Now, this isn't to say that there weren't issues. Now, the concept of only selecting four units at once could be challenging when trying to coordinate large armies. Uh, the game ran slowly when large battles occurred, and uh, the late game balance definitely favored the orcs with their warlocks. So even back in 1994, you had people sending letters to Blizzard saying that they needed to nerf warlocks. Uh, the Mac version of the game released one year later, and uh, and reviewers complained that it didn't take into account the Mac's capability for higher resolution graphics, yada, yada, yada. Uh, even with these complaints in mind, Warcraft was Blizzard's best-selling game to date. Obviously, that meant there needed to be a sequel. So in February of 1995, development began on Warcraft 2, Tides of Darkness. Once mighty army of Azeroth lay among the blackened and charred remains of Stormwind Keep. Those that escaped fled across the Great Sea, bringing tales of the suffering they had faced at the hands of the Orcish Hordes. to engage in battle once again, the orcs constructed ships of war to bear them across the Great Sea. The orcish warriors yearned for the sounds of battle to fill the air and looked to the far horizon for new blood to spill. Using the weapons forged by their new allies, the humans made haste to prepare for the onslaught. While dwarven cannon were being loaded, others armed themselves with elven steel and mail. Foe, 
Mankind stands at the shores of destiny and awaits the coming of the Tides of Darkness. Warcraft 2 places us in the human kingdom of Lordaeron, new land created by uh, survivors of Azeroth, which fell at the end of the Orc campaign in the first game. Sorry, little spoiler. So this second war ends up at a final battle at the Orc's Dark Portal. So the success of the first game allowed the team to be expanded, and Warcraft 2 boasted more unit types, including naval units and other really cool stuff like that. Uh, graphics were much improved, and we really begin to see the art and musical styles that we identify with Warcraft emerge in this game. In fact, many of the musical cues in Warcraft 2 reappear in World of Warcraft. The expansion, Through the Dark Portal, takes us to Draenor to destroy the orcs' portals once and for all. Uh, the expansion was the only, I think, one of the only uh, aspects of Warcraft that was not developed by Blizzard. It was, in fact, developed by a third-party uh, development house called Cyberlore Studios. So while the first Warcraft put Blizzard on the map, the refinement, humor, and incredible gameplay of Warcraft 2 pushed them into the top tier of game developers, along with companies like Westwood, LucasArts, id, Sierra, all the guys that you know about. Uh, Warcraft 2 was re-released a few times, in fact, culminating in the Battle.net edition in 1999, which supported online play through Blizzard's new Battle.net service, which, again, still going strong today. Finally, in 2002, we see the release of Warcraft 3 Reign of Chaos. Unlike previous games, Warcraft 3 contained four playable races split across five different campaigns. The sands of time have run out, son of Duratan. The cries of war echo upon the winds. The remnants of the past scar the land. Besieged once again by conflict. arise to challenge fate and lead their brethren to battle. As mortal armies rush blindly towards their doom, 
the burning shadow comes to consume us all. to their destiny. So Warcraft 3 follows the story of Thrall, the Orc leader, and Arthas, the Prince of Lordaeron. We witness Thrall's ascension to Warchief and the eventual defeat of the Burning Legion, who in reality are uh, the demonic forces that corrupted Medivh way back when he was a baby in the background of the first game. Now, the story of Medivh outlined in that first Warcraft Orcs and Humans comes full circle. The story is quite long, quite complex, and very, very interesting, especially if you are a World of Warcraft player. Uh, Warcraft 3 introduced much more complex concepts to the world. Before, both factions were effectively copies of each other with different skins and one high-end unit that did, you know, a little bit of a different thing. Uh, now, each race was quite unique and played very differently, likely inspired by StarCraft, which came out uh, in 1998, a couple of four, four years before Warcraft 3. Uh, we have things like day-night cycles, 3D terrain, which affects units' line of sight, aerial units, and many other things were added. Uh, the game's graphics were also vastly improved, introducing a new 3D engine. Also, a concept thought of in the original game, uh, that of heroes, was brought back. Uh, in addition to your units you controlled one or more hero characters. Uh, these hero characters have special abilities, inventories where they can equip uh, stat-enhancing items, and uh, they also had rudimentary leveling and skill trees. Uh, however, this idea wasn't just a rehash of the original one from Works and Humans. Uh, Warcraft 3, in fact, was originally intended to be a squad-based tactical combat game set in the Warcraft universe. Uh, it was initially actually titled Heroes of Warcraft. Over the development, uh, the game transitioned, let's say, into a more traditional uh, RTS, but the concept of heroes remained. In fact, compared to the previous games, Warcraft 3 was much, much more cinematic, with the story developing both via pre-rendered and in-engine cutscenes. Uh, the non-real-time strategy routes were likely the reason for this as well. So despite some complaints uh, of graphical quality and uh, little new kind of groundbreaking real-time strategy gameplay, Warcraft 3 was met again with huge critical acclaim and sold incredibly well. Of course, one reason for the popularity of all Warcraft games could be attributed to the packaged mission builders and the ability to mod the base game. Uh, each game in the series was more moddable than the last culminating in Warcraft 3, which was immensely moddable, scriptable, art-modifiable, whole whack of stuff. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So this, of course, brings us into the current day and the future. So Warcraft 3's expansion, The Frozen Throne, which continues Arthas' story, was the last real-time strategy entry in the Warcraft series. In 2004, 
World of Warcraft, the industry-leading and record-breaking MMO game, uh, launched and, well, no longer at its peak user base. Uh, it still has, as of last count, about 7.5 million players. Its fifth expansion, Warlords of Draenor, is due to launch very soon with no end to development in sight. Also, near the end of 2013, Hearthstone, Heroes of Warcraft, an online trading card game in the vein of Magic the Gathering, launched and is now out in full release, including uh, an iPad version. I'm not sure if there's an Android version, but I, I know there's an iPad version. Uh, all the cards, powers, and characters uh, in Hearthstone are, of course, pulled from the Warcraft universe. Finally, a new MOBA or multiplayer battle arena game called Heroes of the Storm is now in beta. Uh, in this game, you pit many heroes from Warcraft and other Blizzard games against each other, Defense of the Ancients style, which is interesting because Dota started life out as a, as a mod for Warcraft 3. Heck, if you look at it, modding Warcraft 3 created an entirely new, immensely popular genre of game. So, where can you get Warcraft 1, 2, and 3 today? Well, this is an odd one. Uh, aside from eBay, garage sales, and abandonware sites, there's nowhere that you can legally purchase a digital copy of any of these games or any of their expansions. However, there are two points to make here. Firstly, at the last BlizzCon, which I believe was 2012 or 2013, anyways, the last one, a rumor started circulating that Blizzard has put together one or two small development teams tasked with making the original games run without issues on modern systems. I assume they'd start with the original Orcs and Humans and go from there, but I guess we'll see. Now, aside from that one rumor and some chatter on the net, that's all I've got there. Secondly, in the past few weeks, Blizzard did something interesting. If you log into your Battle.net account, if you have a Battle.net account, and you go to manage your games, you will see a new grouping called Classic Games. Right now, there are three games available for download, Rock and Roll Racing, Lost Vikings, and Blackthorn. My hope is that this section will be expanded with more games, including the RTS Warcraft games, the first Starcraft, and uh, Diablo 1 and 2. However, for the moment, dig out your old game discs or practice some Google Foo and you'll be able to play on DOSBox with only a few minor issues. I did have a bit of a timing issue with the default kind of DOSBox speed where some of the animations went a bit too fast. Little bit of tweaking uh, fixed that. Though the first time I tried to tweak it when I was streaming the uh, Orcs and Humans, I actually ended up crashing the game. But, you know, a little bit of work and you can get it working uh, nicely. Now, if you can get your hands on the Battle.net edition of Warcraft 2, it will play natively in Windows 7 and 8 with some minor tweaks to compatibility settings. Warcraft 3, I believe from the last time I tried, runs without any problem at all. What? What do you want? Why do you keep touching me? Okay, time for more emails, because it's frankly not very surprising that such an iconic series generated some email. So let's read a few. First, we've got one from BJ. He writes, Hi, Joe and fellow blockers. I'm writing to talk up the Warcraft series. I got the first two Warcraft games and Beyond the Dark Portal expansion for Warcraft 2 in a battle chest set that I got for a long ago birthday, and I just adored playing these games. 
First, I must say that I almost never played the story missions on any of the Warcraft games when I was younger, so I can't comment on the story and or the lore. But I did play lots of skirmishes against the CPU, especially in Warcraft 2, which I had gotten seriously addicted to and had pretty much warned me off playing the MMO based on Warcraft, which, slight side note, it really irritates me when people only talk about the MMO when it comes to Warcraft and not the RTS games from which the World of Warcraft sprang forth from, as well as Warcraft 3. However, by the time Warcraft 3 dropped, I had stopped playing RTS games because they had gotten much too samey for me in the early 2000s, especially since the Age 2 engine got used in a lot uh, of games like Star Wars Battlegrounds, which I personally love to play again and see if someone like Disney or GOG can get it working on modern systems. Oh well, time to fire off Boxer and play Warcraft 1 and 2 again. See you on the Facebook group. Well, thank you, BJ, and... You know, it's true, and I think that's that's one reason that I did really want to do this show, because yes, there's a lot of people that say that Warcraft began and ended with, with WoW, and that's absolutely not the case. Um, you know, you see it in the first game, and you see it in the second game, and absolutely in Warcraft 3. Basically, at the end of Warcraft 3, The Frozen Throne, that is effectively the state of the world that uh, began in vanilla WoW, so... I know if people haven't gone back and played Warcraft 3 for a really long time, you don't quite remember that, but there's so many cues that are taken into WoW and kind of are run with that are created in Warcraft 3. I mean, you have Arthas, you have Jaina Proudmoore, you have Uther Lightbringer, uh, you know, obviously Thrall, Vol'jin, or whatever, and, and you know, there's just all the players are there, and it's just, it's just a really cool to kind of jump back and, and see where things began. Next, we have a message from Elima. She writes, Hello, Joe and fellow blockers. First off, happy 50th Upper Memory Block podcast. Here's to at least 50 more. I always enjoy the podcast, so thanks, Joe, for all your hard work. I was thrilled when you announced that the Warcraft series was up next, as this is another series I used to play back in the day with my sister. More specifically, Warcraft 2. Lots and lots of Warcraft 2. You've probably covered this in the show already, but I remember being amazed by the voiced mission briefings. My sister played the Orc campaign, and I, of course, went with the Alliance, being the eternal goody-two-shoes with a soft spot for elves. We absolutely loved unique unit voices, and most particularly the Orc peons Zugzug and I'm Ready for Work. These Orc peons were kind of cute and not all that fearsome. They were my sister's favorite unit, and I favored the elven archers. We weren't very good. RTSs just aren't our cup of tea, so I remember those cheat codes... It's a good day to die, make it so, hatchet, glittering prizes. Shameful, I know, but we had lots of fun with this one, and it's truly one is one of those big games. Who would have imagined back then that the Warcraft franchise would become what it is today? I certainly didn't see it coming. I'm definitely curious to find out if you think they still hold up today. I think they might, though I think that might be the nostalgia talking. I could find my old CDs, and my Google Foo failed me when I tried to find the earlier games for sale, so I haven't gone back to play them. Looking forward to hearing the episode and your opinion. Thanks again for the podcast, Emily slash Elima. Well, thank you for the email. And, and as I just said, yeah, at the moment, it seems like there isn't a place to buy them. And uh, and I'm actually glad you did mention the voiced mission briefings because I, I didn't mention them, in fact. And, and for the time, that was really, really cool. Uh, obviously, in Dune 2, they didn't have any of that. And... Um, this was kind of more at the beginning of, of that kind of thing. Once Command and Conquer came out, and I think that was 95, they had the full motion video stuff. But this was really cool, and it really put you kind of into the world. The orc had the kind of, I'm an orc voice, and blah, 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 and Blackhand wants you to build four farms. And 
whatever. It, it really did help with the immersion. And yes, it, it was, in fact, very, very cool. Finally, an email from Craig. He writes, Hi, Joe. First off, I want to thank you for all the hard work you put into the upper memory block. I look forward to each podcast to bring back memories of my early PC gaming days. You rock, sir. Now, on to the main topic of this email, Warcraft. My memories of Warcraft go back to the very first game when I grabbed a copy of it from my coworkers at a well-known sound card company. After playing Dune 2, I was more than intrigued to play another real-time strategy game, and Warcraft did not disappoint. Unfortunately, I never played the orc side of the campaign, as I thought the greenskins were nasty. Little did I know, some ten years later, I would be bleeding for the horde. Anyway, I digress. Blizzard would go on to give us Warcraft 2 Tides of Darkness and its expansion, Beyond the Dark Portal, which was not actually developed by Blizzard, but by Cyberlore Studios. And then Warcraft 3, which completely upped the graphics, sound, and multiplayer. But what I want to get into what makes the Warcraft universe amazing is the lore behind it. Even before World of Warcraft, Blizzard was building an amazing world with rich characters, detailed cities, and villains who were out to dominate the world or destroy it. I cheered for Thrall as he came into power, cursed Arthas for the decisions he made, and enjoyed watching the Horde come together. That's all I have to say for now. Thank you again, Joe, for your amazing work. Take care. Craig, aka Wildman Cal. Well, thanks, Craig. And you know, I spent I spent a good amount of time on uh, on on lore in this podcast and you know, that was just most of the lore that I talked about was straight from the Warcraft one manual. And there was pages and pages of it in there. And just since then, I mean, there's novels I got, you know, I turn around and look at my bookshelf and I've got quite a few all around the rise of the horde, which, which kind of covers the time on Draenor and Gul'dan, the warlock and, and everything that I talked about in, in novel form. And, you know, there's Arthas, which shows kind of the fall of, of Arthas to, to become the, the Lich King. And, and so much. I mean, it's such a rich world, and I'm so glad that Blizzard put the time in to kind of develop it and are supporting, you know, authors like uh, Christy Golden to to keep developing it. It's it's a really really great great world. Hi, I'm Francisco Ruiz, and together with my good friend Paul Powers and a rotating guest host, we make up the Retro Rewind podcast. Twice a month, we pick a movie or video game from 15 or more years ago and discuss whether it is still worth revisiting today. So if you've thought about rewatching The Rocketeer, playing back through Mega Man X, or you're just a child of the 70s and 80s like us, you should check us out for laughs, for nostalgia, and definitely for our take on what's a classic and what's second class. Find us at RetroRewindPodcast.com, where you can subscribe on iTunes, RSS, and more. So, verdict time. Does Warcraft hold up today? Well, two-part answer here. The first game holds up from a historical perspective. If you're a WoW player or you're interested in lore, it's very interesting to go back to the old kingdom of Azeroth and meet Blackhand and all that noise. However, as a game, Orcs and Humans doesn't hold up quite as much. It's absolutely more playable than Dune 2, but compared to later games, it's definitely a bit lacking. The two major issues I had with Orcs and Humans are the following. One, as far as I could see, there is no way to check your objectives while you're in mission. This cost me to, <laughs> this caused me to restart the first mission three times because I couldn't remember that I had to build six farms and not four. If you go and watch my YouTube playthrough, you get to watch me do the first mission three times. 
Two, and much more importantly than me being an idiot and not being able to remember the number six, are that the units in this game, and just the game in general, move very slowly. This makes each mission take a very, very long time. Your warriors move to targets slowly, they swing their weapons slowly, the enemy swings their weapons slowly, your peasants collect gold and wood slowly. It just really unnaturally slows down the pace of the game. This isn't to say the first game wasn't incredible and groundbreaking when it came out. I played it at that time and I loved it. It's just not fast enough to be fun today. It just seems like everything's running in slow motion. As for the other two games, they are achievements. Masterpieces. Warcraft 2 really kicked the art style, the lightheartedness, and the general tone of the world of Warcraft, ha ha ha, into what we know it to be today. Warcraft 3, in my mind at least, remains a pinnacle of RTS storytelling. It set the bar for how to tell a dramatic story via in-engine cutscenes in addition to the pre-rendered stuff. That's actually one thing I never got around to mentioning until right now, just kind of popped into my head. Uh, The quality of Blizzard's pre-rendered cinematics. While the ones in Warcraft 1 and 2 looked dated by today's standards, they were incredible at the time. I remember seeing the ships and the cannons firing in Warcraft 2, and I was floored. The scenes from the Warcraft 3 intro give games that come out today a run for its money. The quality of Blizzard's animation is great. And talk about making a game engine that lasts. World of Warcraft was, in fact, at least in its vanilla version, built on a modified version of the Warcraft 3 engine. And while I'm sure most of the code inside of it has been updated, you know, over the past 10 years of WoW's existence, that base engine has lasted over 12 years at this point. It was created in 2002, and it's still, to some degree, powering WoW today. As we've seen, making a great engine and allowing the community to mod it can make a good game great and a great game timeless. It's easy to see why Blizzard has become such a dominant force, or should I say why Activision Blizzard has become such a dominant force in the games industry. With very few exceptions, Death and Return of Superman being one of them, every game they put out has been has pushed the envelope of what came before it in one way or another. If not in gameplay, then in graphics. If not in graphics, then in storytelling. And if not in storytelling, then in some form of technology. Warcraft is awesome. Enough said. So that's that. Thanks, as always, to all who contributed this time around. Next time, I'm going to do one of my time travel casts. So last week, Tesla Effect, the new Tex Murphy game that funded via Kickstarter, released. Uh, I bought it, and I will be giving it a playthrough, and we are going to chat all about it. So if you've played Tesla Effect and you have an opinion on it, is it good, is it bad, is it just as good as, you know, Overseer, other Tex Murphy games, drop me a line at podcast at umbcast.com if you want to make your voice heard. You can talk about anything else too, but if you want to send me something on Tex Murphy, that'd be awesome. Thanks, as always, to Rick Moyer for his great audio work. You can find him at moyermultimedia.com. You can check out the show notes at umbcast.com. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash umbcast. We have tons of fun there. Follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash umbshow. I've been tweeting a little more than I used to on on that that feed. And me personally at twitter.com slash billybob476, where I complain about things. Uh, You can also find the show on YouTube at youtube.com slash umbcast. You can watch me do do some playthrough videos. Uh, You can watch me 
redo the first mission of Warcraft 1 three times. You can watch me fumble around to try and get Warcraft 2 working because I had some trouble, but really I'm having so much fun streaming and uh, especially in the Warcraft 2 video there were there were a couple of people watching kind of interacting and and it was lots of fun. As always, please subscribe to the show on iTunes, stream us live at Stitcher Radio, leave me some reviews. There haven't been many new reviews on uh, on iTunes for uh for a while. I would really 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 love and appreciate if you guys throw some more on there, be they on whatever store you uh, you inhabit, preferably a five-star if you think I deserve it, I would appreciate it. So that's that for another week, and I will see you all next time for Tesla Effect here in the Upper Memory Block. Battle control terminated.
You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastroianni. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Join us.